0: Welcome to Eat Sleep Wine Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Janina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier, so stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello to all the thirsty people in this world. Welcome back to another episode. And today is a goodie. I'm talking with the winemaker from Quintessa, which produces some of the most desirable wines coming out of Napa Valley. I'm tasting their Savignon Blanc blend today. Question Have you ever heard of Savignon Mosquet? Well, I hadn't until speaking with Rebecca. So if you haven't, stay tuned. You soon, sure, will. So, alongside talking about the great varieties. We'll be comparing Sauvignon Blanc from Napa Valley to New Zealand so you can really understand the differences and nuances between the two. We'll be looking at different fermentation vessels, what they all do, and how that actually affects the flavors of the wines. Now, Quintessa is a biodynamic winery and so we'll talk about some of those biodynamic preparations and what it's like to farm holistically and Rebecca will talk about the droughts that California has been suffering and actually why it's so important to manage the rain and how that affects the vines. So there's loads in this episode I'm not going to do any more talking I am going to go over to that chat now.
1: Hello, and how are you doing, Rebecca? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. It's wonderful to be here with you. Now, I think
0: I really want to touch on something very important right now, and this is your last name, Weinberg, Rebecca Weinberg. Do you feel <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like this had anything to do with becoming a winemaker? Or is this just a very happy coincidence?
1: It's a happy coincidence, and I'm ashamed to admit that it didn't occur to me until somebody else pointed it out. Are you being so serious? That, yeah, I mean, yeah, I didn't. I I <laughs> got the idea of being a winemaker. Um, so I don't come from California. I don't come from a wine region or a wine family. I got the idea of being a winemaker quite young at 16 years old. And at that point, it didn't occur to me really that it was my last name. It didn't occur to me until I was applying for my first winery job, my first harvest job, and I had no experience. And the person who called me back and hired me told me that it was my name that made her look (laughs) at my resume twice and call me there you go that is
0: fate that is so funny I actually think you may well have one of the best names in the wine industry but we'll have to see we'll
1: have to we'll have to see there's Emily Wines she's an MS
0: but is that her last
1: name Wines is her last name
0: oh okay that one's pretty good
1: That one's good as well. Well,
0: okay, I put this out to everyone listening. Please get back to us. Do you know of anybody else in the wine industry with a destined name? Let us know. That's so funny. So you said at 16, you, right, that's it. I'm going to be a winemaker.
1: Well, the idea came to me. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah, I grew up on the um, east coast of the United States in Washington, D.C., and so, you know, no farming, no vineyards near there, or, you know, there are Mm -hmm. some near there, but there weren't any in D.C., of course. And it was on a family vacation to California that included a day trip up to Napa Valley that I got the idea of being a winemaker. Well, thank no. God for that one trip, right? So right. What would I have done?
0: I mean, Napa, was it the beauty? What was it, it when you came to Napa? It
1: was the beauty. It was you're you see this, and if, if you've ever, if you've never been here, let me paint the picture. So Napa Valley is a valley. I haven't. Okay. So yes, obviously we're a valley. On the south end, we're at the San Pablo base. We're about an hour away from San Francisco. And as you... Mm drive up Napa Valley. It's pretty small. It's only 30 miles north to south and the valley floor five miles across at its widest point. So you're driving up this absolutely beautiful valley. You see the Mayakamas Mountain Range on your west side, the Vaca Mountain Range on your east side, and then there's just this expanse of vineyards and beautiful trees and wineries and hot air balloons in the sky and it's oh, I mean that's yeah it, it, it's it's really I think one of the most beautiful places um, in the world. And you have
0: been to quite a few haven't you? <laughs> yes. So where has your winemaking journey taken
1: you then? So I have had the opportunity um, to work in uh, Italy in Bulgari mm-hmm. which is incredible
0: I've been there, tick,
1: okay. Yes, I mean, that that's something. Um, that's up there yeah. in top 10. And in New Zealand, um, which is, you know, the, I think actually the most beautiful country in the world.
0: <laughs> You're like, no, still Napa. Napa Ooh. wins. But it's so great. Uh, New okay. Zealand
1: is small. So it's got all this okay. beauty in a very tight little mm-hmm. package. Um <laughs> California is big.
0: No, I like it. So what makes New Zealand special in terms of the vines and the vineyards that you went to
1: visit? So I think what makes New Zealand special is, and, and these are the things in, in my mind that make every region or any great estate special, is a combination of geology and climate and then culture. So in New okay. Zealand, you have the volcanics, young volcanics. Mm-hmm. You have a cooler climate and wet so that's affected how those volcanics have broken down into their soils which affects the um, taste of their wine and then you have a culture that kind of kiwi can do culture that doesn't have any pretension and has this you know they're isolated they've had to do for themselves um, and they just have a really great feeling about them so
0: I love that. And you've also been to Oregon, haven't and you? I've have Wine to making as well? Yes,
1: wine making in Oregon as well. I've used wine making as a uh, a way to finance my travels when I was younger. I've used
0: wine as a way to finance, <laughs> just in general, any excuse. Wine is the reason. So how does Oregon, being further north, I mean, obviously slightly cooler, hence why, yes. we, you know, it's known for its Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris, etc. But how, how does that compare then to Napa? So it
1: is... You know, significantly cooler. Napa is, um, it's a we're inland. So in California, every mountain range that you come in from the coast gets warmer. Um, and mm-hmm. so Napa is a few mountain ranges in, so it's warmer, but we have the cooling effect of the San Pablo Bay. So kind of a wind tunnel yeah. that comes up um, from the Pacific. Oregon is cooler, different soils, and quite wet. So okay so yeah yeah so Comparison I'm actually with New Zealand yeah I went up there it, was wet. it felt wetter than New Zealand to be honest I went up there and it was when I was younger and I was like you know maybe yeah. I could move up here and live up here and I was like then I was like oh yeah it rains a lot
0: yeah so in that case I wouldn't spend that much time here in the UK
1: <laughs> I have been to the UK
0: yes but you didn't stay I didn't did stay. you yes. I mean it's lovely for a trip yes <laughs> But maybe not so much full-time. No, but anyway, we Brits, we like to just moan about the weather. That's just un- <laughs> That is literally the number one subject. The first thing that anybody says whenever you meet anyone, how's the weather? Oh, the weather's rubbish. Oh, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, we're, we're not very creative. Yeah, here we anyway. talk
1: about rain. It's like, how's the weather? Well, it hasn't rained. You know, it's beautiful right now. Don't brag. Well, no. Stop showing off. We're, we're in a drought. Oh. So it's like you have this... It's February okay. right now when we're talking. Yeah. Um, and it is... Yeah. Blue skies, not a cloud in the sky, and it is, you know, high of 70 degrees. Oh, what is okay? So, in, um, oh, I'm, Do you know Celsius? Oh my gosh. I, I only know a couple <laughs> things in Celsius. So...
0: Wait, 70. 70F 70, 70 to C. This is... I'm always is doing 25? this on podcast. 20, 21. 21.
1: In February. That's
0: actually gorgeous. Yes,
1: except we're supposed to have rain.
0: But you wanna rain now, want shortly, to have then. rain now, surely. And If you've been in a drought... Yes. So actually, for people listening, at what point is it going to start being a problem? You know,
1: I, uh, it's like 20 years ago. <laughs> we're in a significant. <laughs> um, okay. No, so we, we have a Mediterranean climate here. So we get yes. rain in the winter and all of our rain in the winter time, And then we're completely dry during the growing season, which is why yeah. here in the North Coast in California, the um, norm is to irrigate vines because mm-hmm. of the, the system of our rainfall and I know that a lot of people don't you know can be purist about dry farming but frankly, we don't get any rain in the growing season and I will argue that being able to irrigate actually can allow you to train your vines for drought and to be more judicious in your water use um, okay. but if we don't get that rain and snowfall in the winter we're in trouble so but it's, yeah. you know, this is okay. this is the reality and this is something, this I think is our, our number one priority as a as an industry. I think it's our number one priority here at Quintessa and, and how we're thinking about our farming and our future is how to understand this changing climate and to be able to allow the vines to adapt and to adapt ourselves to these conditions.
0: But have you found with the fact that you've been struggling with the drought <laughs> for such a long time, but by being judicious with your use of um how you water is that sending the roots much further down meaning actually they can tolerate the lack of rain so much more are they year on year yes. are they getting better they're
1: getting better and and yeah at um at being able to manage the conditions so if you yeah. if you don't control your irrigation or, you know, I'd say like sometimes if if there's rain or if you're just relying on rainfall, um, and it's not consistent, you might not, you might have water stress during times that you don't want water stress. So say during bloom, you can't like control that Mm -hmm. or you might have too much. Um, if you are irrigating just crazy, like, Oh, let's just irrigate, irrigate, irrigate. (laughs) You're teaching the vines to be, to have, you know, more shallow roots to be weaker and to expect to not conserve themselves so it's like here we want to our our style or our philosophy of of wine growing is to inform the vines that's our job we're stewards of the vines so we want to teach them Mm -hmm. to be able to manage the conditions to they're they're running a marathon not a sprint every season so you want to pace them help them pace themselves i
0: love that Well, I think that segues us into Quintessa as a beautiful winery that you are. Like, I already know the answer, but can you tell everyone why you're so unique and special and
1: beautiful and gorgeous? Can you tell us? I think this is one of the most beautiful estates um, I've ever seen, and certainly in Napa Valley. So Quintessa is a estate in Rutherford. Rutherford is the Mm. heart of Napa Valley. So right in the center of the valley. Yeah. We are nestled along the Vaca Mountain Range. So we're on the eastern side. And Quintessa is unique for a number of reasons, but but kind of the main one geologically is that we are on the valley floor because we are, yeah, um, technically on the valley floor, we are west of the Silverado Trail. but we have a series of hillsides on the property, and mm. those hillsides are the artifact of some crazy geologic activity that happened like five million years ago, where the Vaca Mountain Range was raising up quite fast and it reached a height and a weight that it couldn't manage. And there was this massive landslide. So as the landslide came off of the Vaca Mountain Range, that forms our farthest east um, hillsides. So that's our eastern hills. And then Mm -hmm. that landslide was so powerful that it ripples up. The earth, like the Earth, will act like water at that okay. moment and ripple uh-huh. up. Locally, we call those things toe hills. There, there's the okay. toe hills of Quintessa. So here in Rutherford, there's another kind of toe hill. So that's like imagine. So I'll paint the picture. Like people, we were in Napa Valley. You're on the valley floor. It's fairly flat. There's a Napa River runs through the middle, and then you see these like knolls coming up. So sort of like these hills in the middle of the valley. And it doesn't make any sense why they're there. So it turns out that's that's why why they're there. And locally, they're kind Mm -hmm. of like toe slopes, kind of pushed back up. Um, (laughs) And we have a series of two of them at Quintessa. And then we run all the way to the Napa River. And as you follow Mm. that east to west, um, Quintessa, those hillsides, the three ridges, and then down to the Napa River, you get quite a change in geology and soil type. So we have a very diverse terroir here. And I think that's Mm. the unique character of Quintessa is the, it's a single estate. So the Quintessa red wine just comes from the, it's an estate wine, a vineyard, but that vineyard has a lot of diversity within it. So it creates a, a very complex and layered wine.
0: But I've looked at pictures and there's a
1: beautiful pond or lake as well. Is it right in the middle? There is a 20 acre lake in the middle
0: oh that's okay when I say so when I say little I mean not so little
1: (laughs) yeah the property itself is 280 acres there are um when we're fully into planting our vineyards are 160 acres yeah there's this 20 acre lake in the middle which is it existed before Quintessa it's actually a, a dammed lake and it's Utilized as our reservoir. So it's at the oh,
0: okay.
1: center of the property, surrounded by two of the hillsides. And as we have the winter rainfalls, it naturally collects the winter rain. Um, and then, of course, we'll, we have some wells we pump into the lake um, in the winter. And then we utilize that for irrigation throughout the season.
0: There we go. Beautiful. Nature provides, doesn't it? Yes. And I was <laughs> I was just saying on the label of your estate red. The wine is the actual the part of the lake, and then and one of the tow hills. Yes, actually, kind of two. Yeah, it's it's there on the picture. Of uh, of the wine. It's beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful painting. Yes. We talk about the beauty of the property, but also you are very respectful, aren't you, in Quintessa about how you farm. Everything is biodynamic. This is a very holistic approach. This is very important to you guys, isn't it?
1: It's very important. When So the um, our founders, Augustine and Valeria Junéas, um, when they found Quintessa in the late 1980s, Mm. It was a virgin piece of land; it had never yeah. been farmed before,
0: which is unusual, that, right? In Napa cr- Valley, nearly everything is.
1: By that point, yeah, that was very unusual. Yeah, um, pre nineteen eighties and certainly pre nineteen sixties, um, Napa Valley was more ranching um, mm-hmm. than vineyards. Um, you know, I know your listeners are, are mostly not American, but we had some a very funny thing called Prohibition. Um. Oh, no, no, no. I I think I wouldn't quite call it funny, to be honest. Well,
0: it's funny. Like, if you look
1: back, how did it happen? It's so, to me, it's so crazy Mm -hmm. to have made a lot of We wouldn't.
0: We would not have (laughs) let that happen. We would have been right there with our (laughs) signs. Wine is life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, the the wine industry here didn't um, really come back to life to the 1980s. But by yeah. that point, certainly Valley Flora would have been planted out. Um, this had been a vacation um, home, a party place for a successful restaurant uh-huh. tour from San Francisco in the 50s and 60s. And then his children inherited and could never quite agree on what to do with it. So it just kind of hung out. And when Good for Valeria, us. I mean, it's so incredible. When Valeria Camus <laughs> found it, it was just, it's rolling hillsides. There were. Like five cows on the property having a good time. And I think she said there was a donkey, there was a ranch house. And they and were like, guys,
0: like, come on in, we yeah. don't mind. Respect us. we <laughs> yes. respect you. All is gonna go
1: well. Exactly and she just she she said she she had been looking for a property that they could mm. have as their family estate. So Augustine and Valeria had have, have worked in the wine industry since the nineteen sixties. This has okay. been their life's work. And at that point they wanted to find a property that they could work on together as a family. Valeria is a viticulturalist, so she studied um, grape growing. And Augustine is I and mean, has run a series of incredibly successful wine brands, starting with Toro in the 1960s.
0: Okay. Yep. Um, yeah,
1: you know, that little place. So they <laughs> they they know wine, but they wanted a project that they could work on together and utilize yeah. everything that they had learned. And Valeria had been looking at places all up and down California. And she walked onto this property, which wasn't actually even actively for sale. And she said she just felt, she felt something. She felt okay. that this place had a soul and had something to say and has the potential to be a great wine estate of the world. And I really love that. The, kind of, the connection. Yeah. Oh, I mean, when you come out here, I mean... They, Some of the pictures can can show it a little bit, but when you walk out here, you feel it. There is a feeling here. There is a spirit um, of Mm. Quintessa. And she convinced them that she'd be good steward of the land. And so Augustine and Valeria purchased the property in 1989 and began developing the vineyard. And Valeria directed that. She designed uh, the vineyard blocks. There's 26 blocks on the property Mm -hmm. that follow the contour of the lands. And she felt very deeply that she wanted to be a good steward of the land. So she, from the very beginning, insisted that no synthetic chemicals be used on this property. So Quintessa has been organically farmed since its founding. And no trees were cut down. So like I said, we're a 280-acre estate with 160-acre vineyard. There's the lake, and then the rest of that is native oak woodlands. So she maintained the native surroundings of Quintessa, which are incredibly important. And then in 1996, she got introduced to biodynamic um, philosophy as well and started introducing that to Quintessa. And now we are fully a biodynamic farm.
0: What does biodynamics mean to you? Or in fact, for people, maybe I've touched on it several (laughs) times on my podcast, but we can never hear it enough. And I love the holistic story. So what does it mean to you? What is it?
1: So it is, it's sometimes very complicated to explain because it can be very esoteric. And that is, Mm. and and I think that is confusing, but also very powerful. Biodynamics is a philosophy, a philosophy that guides how you, the farmer, interact with the property and that you think of the farm or you you know, you treat the farm. It is an organism that is a whole and that has its own interactions with the minerals underneath, with the cosmos, with the plants on the property, the animals that live on the property, that all of these are important and that you, the farmer, this, this philosophy kind of guides how you interact with that. Um, the central tenet is trying to close the circle. So mm-hmm. that has a lot to do, um, that, that really translates into thinking about fertility. So that, Inherently, farming is extractive. Every time every harvest comes around and I pull those grapes, I am extracting energy, minerals, nutrients from Quintessa. I'm taking those Mm -hmm. grapes. So how do I put that same fertility back in and as much as possible have it be from the estate? So we create our own compost. Mm -hmm. uh, Most of the, the practices have to do actually with the compost pile and with the soil. Okay. So the kind of directives, and some people think, you know, biodynamics can be can seem a little woo-woo, but it's it's all about soil health. And
0: no, of course, because you yeah. want to get those microorganisms, is that what it is, you know, yes, in, the the soil mi- in the soil, to health. start working, doing their thing. and They produce nutrients, they give minerals, and that's all going to go back yes. into the grapes that we get exactly. to drink, right? Yeah. That's
1: science. And now it's science. So it's so incredible to think that this philosophy mm-hmm. – and biodynamics, and, and when you read about it, this was the 1920s. So it was a you know reaction to some of the, yeah. the post-World uh, War chemical farming. And they didn't, it's, it's only now and continuing that the science, like the tradition, like the, the science, science that I studied in school, is catching up to what these yeah. traditional practices, this traditional holistic farming practices, that your soil microbiome is what's most important
0: hmm yeah. It's like a, a human, isn't it? It's our gut, our it's microbiome. Our gut, yeah. We function better when we sort that out. So again, it's yes. the gut it of vine growing is the soil. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly.
1: And if you create a healthy vine or you allow conditions for the vine to be healthy, then they're going to be resilient. They're going to be resisting pests and diseases. So it's not about control. I and mean, I think that's mm-hmm. where the philosophy comes in. It's as much as possible to try and take your ego out of it. I mean, yeah. that, that's not easy to do um
0: you know do I control I, I fully agree do. I've got a fabulous <laughs> ego no get I it I get it
1: <laughs> it's hard it's like okay, okay so I have to observe I have to listen instead of just putting my ego into this and I think that makes better wine
0: for sure and I think yeah. at least people are starting to understand like you mentioned to some people think it's woo woo of course because it you can't prove every single thing that you're doing. You have to feel it more. But yes. I I think for me, just like I t- try and take care of my health and think about what's going inside my body, organic farming is, of course, much better than conventional farming, if possible, mm-hmm. because you're not using any chemicals, but you're still applying something to... Yeah the problem effectively rather than actually saying right, you're, you're
1: treating the symptom right not the mm-hmm. cause yeah so it's exactly organic farming is like chemical farming without using synthetic chemicals
0: mm-hmm. good I'm glad we both yeah. agree here
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's great I mean we are organic we're certified organic and of course and also they're not at odds with each other but okay. there isn't that greater thought process I think or or asking you to change your relationship um, yeah. to the farm
0: it's the organics on spiritual steroids that's what it is that's what it is (laughs) with a long with a very long term plan that's what it is Uh, can you tell me a few of your perhaps preparations or I've mentioned again of course the cow horn burying in Mm -hmm. autumn I'm assuming you you do yeah so there's
1: the um the biodynamic, the 500 and the 501 prep are the cowhorn preps. One of them is cowhorn manure, one mm-hmm. of them is um, silica. So yeah. that's the one that people are like, "We carry <laughs> manure in a cowhorn underground. So here, think of it this way. So this is we have cows on the property. So these yes. are happy, happy cows that have you know, a very good diet. Um, they have the best life. They, mm-hmm. That's their job is to make manure. Um, Hard like cows, times. <laughs> cows have a pretty incredible oh, – go back to this, like, like gut health. Cows have a pretty incredible digestive system with their four mm-hmm. stomachs. They're able to turn cellulose into energy, something that we can't do. So it makes sense that their manure is going to have a very interesting, very powerful um, microbes in it. Mm-hmm. And you take that fresh manure, you bury it in a cow horn. Now, there are spiritual and cosmic reasons for the cow horn and for burying it at a certain time. But if we, but you can also explain it that the cow horn is a porous vessel that allows the water to exchange through. So you pack fresh manure in the cow horn, you bury it underground at the uh, fall equinox. And it stays at a steady temperature, steady humidity, and it transforms. It ferm- it goes through a fermentation process. It transforms. So when we pack it in, it's cow poo. It smells like cow poo. When you, bur- <laughs> when you unbury it about six months later at the spring equinox, it is completely transformed. So it smells like And it beautiful. smells
0: lovely. Yes. Everyone it says it's lovely, beautiful. It smells lovely, like the
1: best, freshest earth. And then you mix that with water. Um, yeah. And you dynamize it, so you're adding some oxygen, you're activating it, and you spray that on the soil. Mm-hmm. It's like taking that, um, you know, gut health pill.
0: Basically.
1: Yeah, like yeah, we yeah. are spraying and uh, seeding a um, diverse and powerful colony of microbes into the soil that are going to help transform those minerals into availability for the vines.
0: And I think it makes sense because, again, <laughs> from what I've heard, is when everything is dying and finishing for yes, the you descend, know, end of season, yeah, you put it down. Mm-hmm. And then when everything's popping back up in springtime, you bring it back up again. It's like when the energy is coming back out again. It it feels like that completely makes sense.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. there's. I mean, the, the earth is going... These are... The cardinal days and, and the earth has its own cycle and it, it does, especially when you, I, mean, this, I think this is something that I think a lot because I didn't grow, I grew up in a city. I didn't grow up really in, with the connection to the seasons and being mm-hmm. out here, you're very connected to the seasons. You feel it and you can feel that the earth is, is slumbering, is taking that breath in and then the summer solstice, it changes. So like it, it all starts to expand back out again. And you yeah. can see that in the vines; even they're just starting to expand back out. So it's it's a you know it's a beautiful way to to add ritual and 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 I think a little bit more power in the in the the farming, and I think it, you can taste it in the wine.
0: Okay, do you know what? Fine you convinced me. Okay. <laughs> I, I have wine. I have wine. Okay. I can't wait any
1: longer. So you have the illumination, right?
0: I have the illumination. Absolutely. 2018. Now for anyone who I get very excited about this, you can get it in the UK at £37.50 from Ali Wines, but I'll put all the prices in the show notes. But okay. I'm very excited about this because this is not
1: just a Sauvignon Blanc. This is quite special. Yes. So this is the white wine of Quintessa. It's called Illumination. And it is a Sauvignon Blanc, Sauvignon Mousquet, Semillon blend.
0: I'm glad you said Mousquet because I was like, how do you even pronounce it? (laughs) It, This is spelled M-U-S-Q-U-E. Sauvignon Mousquet. I've never heard of this grape variety.
1: So we actually used to, we used to think it was a grape variety. And then DNA, there was an argument here whether or not Sauvignon Mousquet is Sauvignon Blanc or not. Um, with DNA technology, we've, uh, like studying the genome, it is actually Sauvignon Blanc. So it's a variation on Sauvignon Blanc that has more um, of a, mousquet means perfumed, so more of a terpene character in skin. So
0: it's, the, if I'm gonna, yes, you know, you said like a terpene character. First of all, it's very aromatic on the nose and it's almost not muscat, it doesn't go anywhere no. near as far as that. But the kind of floral notes or slight spice you might get with something like muscat or something like a verztramine or something that's there. There's that real beautiful blossom aromatics in there. It's gorgeous. So that's interesting. Okay, everybody, Sauvignon Musque.
1: Sauvignon Musque. So the blend is about 85% Sauvignon Blanc and half of that is Sauvignon Blanc. So you get Mm. the bright acidity the pink grapefruit the pithiness Mm -hmm. all Mm -hmm. those citrus characters then the other half is sauvignon blanc mousquet and here we get more of the so white peach honeysuckle even a little bit of guava so you get slightly tropical but still very bright
0: a lot of nectarine for me it's that mm. yeah
1: minerality it's tense at the same time Mm -hmm. it's
0: textural but the apart from the acidity is super high, but it really for me it's it's really interesting. Part of it is like mid palate; it's rounded, and then it finishes really direct. Yeah,
1: it's like creamy it's, without being creamy. Um, yes, yes. Well,
0: I've cheated because I've looked at the actual okay. winemaking <laughs> specs here <laughs> to know that what also probably makes it special is how you choose aging vessels, right? So right. I think this is really yeah, the interesting. Vessels. And
1: so there's yes. the blend, and then I utilize five different fermentation vessels. It's all barrel fermented, um, mm-hmm. but there's five different, you know, quote-unquote barrels that we're using. Yeah, There are – there's a little bit of new French oak barrel that gives you some spice character and a little bit of tannin. It's about 4%. I use a little bit of French acacia wood, so acacia, it's a barrel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very tight grain, slow-growing tree that doesn't have – like oak but it does have a flavor component so this is like a dried floral or balsam wood you know if you ever did like modeling no. it okay um it's a it's beautiful and it it accentuates the the edginess i think sauvignon mm-hmm. blanc has sharp elbows and it should so this you know uh, acacia again about like four percent these are just her spice notes very very subtle um, I utilize about 20% concrete eggs. So these are like, this is like the cool, it's like Humpty Dumpty, right?
0: I love what they do to wine now. So Me it too. actually creates movement, doesn't it? So it does, I, the, yeah. I don't understand the science behind it, but they so just move the I'm not wine sure way. I
1: understand the science behind it too, but It I, works I, though. It works and it's true. So they, it's unlined concrete, so there's some breathability, but there is no real flavor component. It seems mm. to highlight and accentuate the minerality in okay, yeah. the grape. So I choose the mineral components to go more into the concrete eggs. It has a very steady temperature as well in fermentation. As the fermentation is occurring, you have all these little CO2 bubbles. And the shape of the egg makes these bubbles vortex. So you get this natural stirring so you have that lees contact that creates the body. Mm. And then I utilize about 60% of the majority is neutral oak barrels. So here we're just getting the breathability. So they, they get some oxygen through the barrel, but they don't have a flavor component. And then a little bit, like 15% stainless steel barrels for that linear acidity. Like I still want it to drive all the way through your mouth. And uh. it doesn't go through any malolactic fermentation. So you have... That's this also why it's so roundness. Yeah, you have this compelling texture, but you have this mouth-watering acidity. I think it's one of the best uh, wines to pair with food. It's very flexible because it has enough body to put in place of Chardonnay. Yeah. Like you can put it in on roast chicken. You can put it in a bigger meal, but it has so much acidity, it makes you want to take another bite. It feels bright. Mm. Classic pairings or something, you know, scallops. Um, fish of course oysters oysters work really well I
0: think scallops would be, for me of all of them scallops really works because scallops has the texture but at the same time it's still it's light it doesn't it's scallops isn't actually rich it's more about the texture but yes. it's weightier than flaky fish you know so yes. that actually and the fact that you could put it with a, like a yuzu sauce because Ooh. I get with this wine you've mentioned the word bright it's incredibly bright fruit. And certainly for me, it doesn't go over to the herbaceous side of Sauvignon Blanc. It stays much more of the citrus to tropical aromatics. Hence why I'm saying a yuzu yes. sauce with uh, with scallops would be really, really nice. But it is, it's so mouthwatering, so vibrant. So, as you said, I feel like more like kind of stony on the nose mm-hmm. with this kind of real pithiness. And then it's just literally a rocket ship zooming out of my mouth with this steely uh, acidity. It's really special. This is so beautiful. And as I said to you, I used to sell this wine, going back to Beast, everyone. I don't know if it's still there. Um, probably not because we would only ever be able to get like three bottles
1: at a time here and there, you know. It, it is not a large production, yes.
0: We didn't buy it in cases. We would just find it on fine wine lists that were sourced, you know, so I'd get it every once in a while. It was always just really fun. Cool, cool label as well. What's yes. the label design? Like it's a... The lady. Yes.
1: So it's a small detail from one of the folio pages of the book of Kells. Okay. That, I'm going to pretend I know what that is. So the book of Kells is an illuminated manuscript, an illuminated Bible, and it's on display okay. in Dublin. I think it's the most Be- famous medieval illuminated Bible. Okay. And this is a tiny detail from the um, row page, like the one of the folio pages, Cairo Christ. And it's, when you look at the whole page, it's one letter in a row. This is the tiniest little detail on the top of it. It had to be painted with a single-haired brush. That kind of attention to detail. And there's, um, you know, there's a lot of symbolic imagery in it. If you look at it, there's the mm. crone, the, a the lot of detail, maiden, the, um, it, it's it's. I, it's actually one of my favorite labels.
0: Well, I love the fact that there's a woman on it because that allows me to mention that it's you know, <laughs> Woman History Month, right? And of course, I am chatting with fabulous, fantastic women this month. So, you, I'm so pleased to have you here. So, just as a touch on uh, the Women's Month, ha- is there any inspirations for you in the wine industry? Because we know this is a very male-dominated industry, and we're we're showing them how it's done.
1: It's fabulous. More and more of us are coming on board. But
0: any, any inspirations for you?
1: Oh, certainly. Um, you know, when I was in school, so I went to UC Davis, which is the, the wine school out here, mm-hmm. um, women were graduating about 50%. Okay, great. S- That's Still, we're ah. in California, we're at 10% of winemakers are women. That's not so good. It's not good. We're getting better. We're getting better. I think okay. in Napa, we're about 15%. Um, and so there have been, you know, I, I am colleagues with and friends with um, these pioneering women, the first women winemakers out here. And I, I mean, I'll have to shout them out. They're, they're so amazing. Um, we're really all coming together um, and bringing each other up. So I have been lucky enough to um, have Celia Welch as my mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you And know, Celia is an incredible winemaker um, and an incredible person. And you know it's I, I'm very lucky to have that. We have a very tight group out here and, and we're seeing more and more um women we're we're getting there. good we're getting there.
0: okay, right, um, so let's talk next year, let's hope we can get it to twenty percent female yes. winemakers <laughs> <laughs> as long as it keeps on going up that's the that's the main yes. thing isn't it well the
1: more there are of us um the more there will be. I really believe it's if you can't see it, you can't be it um, mm-hmm. and I'm. I'm sort of second generation women winemakers in Napa, maybe two and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, And the people that came before me really helped me, and I'm helping the people after me because they had to fight just to even be considered like that it's even possible that they're physically capable of being a winemaker. I've had to fight to people to just even, I'm still not what people envision a winemaker looks like but the more women winemaker they are that the broader that vision is and so yeah. the next yeah. generation and the generation below that won't have to to spend their energy on that fight. Um, no, they just have I to agree. do the others.
0: <laughs> exactly. We keep on fighting. I've been very lucky. I haven't had, um, I actually haven't come across where I felt that this my sex has affected my job opportunities. But I will always remember as a sommelier one time, somebody asked for the, the song. I went over, Hi guys, how can I help you with the wine list? And they went, Oh, we asked for the sommelier. And I said, I am the sommelier. And they said, But you're a girl. <laughs> But to be fair in their defense, not that I should be defending them, if it was, wasn't was like they were being rude. It was just that their expectation, they, it, it was yeah. almost like, oh, I can't, my brain was expecting a man. And so, of course, I was incredibly rude, told them how it was, and then they ordered <laughs> wine from me and enjoyed the wine and we moved on. But, you know, it, it was like, right, gentlemen, yeah, so- learning curve for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a lot. It's not... Um- and I think mentorship has a lot to do with this. There's, we have a couple of, you know, I mentioned Celia was, has been my mentor.
0: Yes. Um, and
1: I have been part of a, a group called the Botanage Forum, which is for women okay. in wine. And we have a mentorship um, group and I was a mentor to, or am a mentor to other women. Um, I, I think that that, yeah, kind of having that conversation about what's possible or you know, who who can be a sommelier, what does they look like? Because people aren't, I don't think people are consciously or or meanly um, excluding you. They just don't realize it. They are not considering it. So we have a a, a bunch of organizations here that are are working towards um, increasing the the diversity and representation in wine um, for in all aspects, not just in production or, or you know winemaking or vineyards, but in mark in, in every aspect. Um, Faz.
0: Now, I want to finish off just quickly on the Sauvignon Blanc for people. Everyone is very familiar with Marlborough Sauvignon Mm -hmm. Blanc, very pungent, generally very aromatic. How would you just, having been there and of course tasted loads of Sauvignon Blancs, how would you compare Sauvignon Blanc from Napa Valley, California in general to Mm.
1: New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc? So they're quite different. Um, Mm -hmm. I think Sauvignon Blanc is one of the great varieties of the world because it is Able to make great wines in many different places, and it is transparent to terroir. So yeah. It shows where it's from, or it can show where it's from. So that you know, super grassy, very very um, aromatic New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc is one style. Um, the white Bordeaux or the Sancerre, so the Loire Sauvignon Blanc is another style. The illumination, so typical Napa. Valley Sauvignon Blanc, and I wouldn't put Illumination as a typical um, Sauvignon Blanc because it's a um, it's something made with I think a little bit more intention and mm-hmm. focus than unfortunately traditional. Like Sauvignon Blanc suffers from being easy to grow um, and easy to make, and so a lot of Sauvignon Blanc can kind of be made as an afterthought. In Napa, as I mentioned, we have a warmer climate, so what we're doing with Illumination is we are capturing the California sunshine those ripe fruit flavors that you talked about. But we're also working with vineyards that are in the cooler, more foggy areas. So hillsides that are well-drained, that have the fog, so they maintain that acidity. Mm-hmm. So you have that special balance between, um, you know, not grassy, not, not gooseberry kind of character, but, but citrus and um, stone fruit, but maintaining that kind of acidity and having a reasonable alcohol so it's not hot um what's our alcohol here
0: not that i care but some people will ask 14 so yes for a sauvignon blanc that is higher but it doesn't feel it for my region
1: that is not that high
0: (laughs) (laughs) so generally that's i think that's probably a summary then isn't it more riper fruit more more of the kind of citrus to tropical notes less grassy but still beautiful acidity tend to be higher alcohol so probably weightier
1: as well weightier and more mineral character
0: yeah we l- love it if if more of Napa Valley Sauvignon Blancs could be like yours I would be literally a convert totally and just be going straight to Napa so I'm I'm in for a treat later because I've still got the whole bottle to go so yum <laughs> thank you thank you so much for making the illumination my pleasure Now, as you know, during these episodes of March, I want there to be a little bit of a nod to the wonderful women in the wine world. And so I just want to quickly touch on Celia Welch, who Rebecca mentioned was her mentor and one of her inspirations. If you don't know who Celia Welch is, you definitely should. She makes the wines at Scarecrow. The Scarecrow Cabernet Sauvignon is a cult wine and is incredibly hard to get your hands on. It is made in the Rutherford region of Napa Valley and so are the Bordeaux Blend wines made by Rebecca at Quintessa. So next week, when you tune in, we'll be opening up two different vintages of the Quintessa Bordeaux Blend. We will look at the different grape varieties and what they add to the mix, looking at mapping of the vineyard, so you can understand the different soil types and the complexities and differences, even within one area of Napa Valley and to hear the perspective of a winemaker with the highs and lows of fantastic vintages and not so great vintages. Now, I'm sure Celia Welsh would also have a lot to say about that, having been in the wine industry for well over 30 years. She earned herself Rising Star Award from the Southern California Chapter of Women for Wine Sense and, in fact, was inducted to the Winemakers Hall of Fame by the National Chapter of that same organisation. She's been honoured as Winemaker of the Year in 2008 by Food and Wine magazine and as one of Forbes.com's top 10 Tastemakers of 2006. Now, as always, I shall leave you with a wine quote. And I wanted to pick an impactful woman. So I've chosen best-selling and award-winning writer and author Jodie Picoult. She's also a member of the VIDA Women in Literary Arts Advisory Board. So it's a non-profit that addresses gender parity in the literary world and aims to amplify marginalized voices and she has said the wine it made her limbs loose and the liquid made her feel that a hummingbird had taken the place of her heart it's not really a wine quote is it that's wine poetry Right. That is it. Thank you as always. If you're new to this podcast, do make sure you have subscribed, like the podcast, share it with your wine loving friends. And if you can leave a comment, please do. as It makes the podcast more discoverable. You already know exactly what's coming next week. So I'll see you again. And until then, cheers to you.